I'd like to invite your attention to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and specifically verses 25 through 32, which we'll be taking a look at here for the next couple of weeks. The apostle writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Father, we are in a portion of Scripture in which the Apostle Paul lays out the characteristics of the new walk. And Father, I want to remind myself and each one of us that we are able to do these things because of grace. You're not asking us to do these things in our own strength. You have given us the power through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to begin to be angry and yet not sin. Father, help us to rest in your grace this morning. Father, help us not to take on a role that we were never intended to take. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. If Christians are supposed to be perfect people, as many falsely believe, then there would have been no need for Paul to include this section in his letter. Agreed? If it is true that when a person is born again, they no longer need to worry about sin, which, believe it or not, there are Christians out there who mistakenly believe in something called sinless perfection. I used to work with a man by the name of Keith Frottenneck. I'll try and spell that name three times fast. And he believed, he was, a, he, was a, he was actually a Nazarene preacher, and he believed that he had reached a state of sinless perfection. Now, most of you don't know my brother, but if you knew my brother, this would be completely in line with his character. He said to him one time, well, how about all those times that you show up late for work? Isn't that sin? Well, he was stumped. So if there is such a thing as sinless perfection, why would Paul give these commands? Well, the reality is that we all know deep down in our hearts and by experience that Christians are not perfect people, that they are not sin-free people. And the reality is that all Christians struggle with the sins that Paul describes here as well as with a multitude of other sins. And I was thinking this morning, earlier this morning, that even though it's not a large group that I preach to every week, I do not for a second labor under the impression that everybody here is a genuine believer. And maybe there's someone here this morning who desires to be a Christian, 
but you know that you're not perfect. And that you're plagued by the sins that the Bible describes, such as what Paul talks about here. You have a problem being truthful. Or you have anger issues. And those sins have led you to a place of deep despair and have somehow convinced you that salvation is not for you. Well, I want you to take heart. Because the only kind of people that Jesus saves are imperfect ones. Amen? The only people Jesus saves are liars, people with anger issues, thieves, people with foul mouths. Jesus saves imperfect, sinful people. And over time, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he makes them has-beens. He takes those who used to be and moves them to the no longer are side of the ledger. Listen to, what, uh, listen to the reminder that the Apostle Paul gave to the saints in the church at Corinth. He wrote to them, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if Paul had stopped right there, we'd all be in very, very, very bad shape. But he didn't stop there, and he said, and such, what's it say? Were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Normally, if you are called a has-been, that is not a compliment. But the Christian is happy and thrilled to be a has-been. Amen? A Christian may have been all of these things in the past, but that is not what they are now. And if you're here today and you're not perfect, yet if you will come to Christ, you will become a happy has-been. And when it comes to being a Christian, I would much rather be a has-been than he never was. If you would like to talk about coming to Christ, you can see myself or a number of other people, and I encourage you to do that even today. Well, when God works in us and brings us to repent of our sins and to place our trust in Christ, he immediately begins to change us and to conform us to the image of Christ. And as the believer hears the word preached, the Holy Spirit takes the preaching of that word and begins, it to, begins to apply it to the life of the believer so that every believer begins to make incremental progress in becoming like Christ. It's interesting to me that the Bible gives no time frame for this. So we want to be careful about judging others. Some, it may take decades for the Spirit to bring them to the place where they need to be. Others, it may happen more quickly. But regardless, all those who are in Christ are becoming like Christ. And sometimes the Holy Spirit works directly on our minds to change the way that we think. Remember earlier here in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he described the futility of the unsaved mind. 
And then we know that the Bible teaches that the mind of the believer has been renewed and is continuing to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. So there are times when the Holy Spirit works in our minds. There are other times when the Holy Spirit goes directly at our actions. The believer is given specific commands to stop doing certain sinful actions and to replace them by beginning to do godly actions. And that's really what we have here in this section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. For instance, in verse 25, as we saw last week, you as a believer are instructed to do what? To stop lying and to begin telling the truth with your neighbor. So in verse 25, there are two commands. Command one, stop lying. Command two, begin telling the truth. Say, why are those commands given to us? So that we will change our behavior. They are given to us to keep us from engaging in behaviors that are sinful and must not characterize a believer, and in this case would be lying, and then is given a godly behavior, which is speaking the truth, that should characterize the believer. So what do we have here? We have objective evidence, if you will, that we can evaluate our lifestyle to see whether or not we are walking the worthy walk. And if we are not, then we need to step back and do what? Make some corrections. Or perhaps we need to go back and examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. So in verse 26, we're given another command. But it's a command that seems to contradict other commands in Scripture. Notice what Paul says. Be angry. Now, I want to I draw a, a distinction. He doesn't say get mad. He says get angry. Be angry. Paul commands you, as a believer, to be angry. Now, Perhaps there's somebody here this morning that says, we, we read that, we hear that, and we say, finally, a, a command I'll have no problem keeping. I got that one down. Well, uh, before we uh, head down that path, let's make sure that we understand, that we have a proper understanding of what Paul means when he commands us to be angry. So we need to begin by defining the anger that Paul commands. So the kind of anger that Paul advocates is a deep-seated, determined, and settled conviction. It is a deep-seated, determined, and settled conviction. It is a deeply held belief. We might even say it's a core principle. It is a guiding principle in our lives. Contrasted with sinful anger which is characterized as a momentary outburst of anger. It's when somebody throws a temper tantrum. It's anger that comes from a person that boils over with rage. So the anger that Paul commands you as a believer to have is controlled. It is determined. It is settled. It 
And we are to have this kind of anger. Let me back up and clarify my thought. In order for us to practice, to demonstrate this kind of righteous indignation, if you will, righteous anger, two things need to be true. And I won't go into them this morning because they are, I believe, self-explanatory. Number one, you have to know God. But, and you also have to know God's heart. Okay. And you learn those things through his word. Now, whenever you come to a specific text, a particular text, and you're not quite sure exactly what the meaning is, what's the Bible principle? What do we need to do? We need to compare Scripture with scripture. In other words, we need to see if this is written about, perhaps further explained in other parts of Scripture. Well, interestingly enough, Ephesians 4.26 has a counterpart in the Old Testament, which is Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. So Paul writes, be angry, but don't sin. David writes, be angry and do not sin. That's pretty similar, isn't it? So both Paul and David give us the same truth. Give, they teach us two truths. Number one, and this may come as a shock to many of us, we are commanded to be angry. Be angry is a command. So they both say you need, there are times, and we'll look at that, when you need to be angry. Secondly, they both teach it is possible to be angry, to express anger, to experience the emotion of anger and still not sin. And that's where most of us get into trouble. Because we practice, we demonstrate, we are overcome by ungodly, unrighteous, sinful anger, we sin. But now we are left with this question, how do we reconcile what Paul and David have written, how do we reconcile that with what we find elsewhere in the Scriptures? Because there are numerous other places in the Scriptures that warn us and command us to put away anger. For instance, Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8 said, But now you must put them all away. And what's number one on the list? Anger. Psalms 37, 8 tells us to refrain from anger and forsake wrath. The preacher in Ecclesiastes says, be quick, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Paul, I don't know if you caught it right in this very same passage that we read this morning in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Paul, did you have a senior moment and you forgot what you wrote a few verses before? No, no, he hasn't. So how are we to understand Paul's command in verse 26? Well, hopefully it's clear from the verses that I just referenced that there are two distinct kinds of anger addressed in the Bible. And I think we can categorize them very succinctly by saying this. There is an anger that honors God, and there is an anger that dishonors God. And so what Paul is addressing here is the first kind of anger. It is an anger that honors God. Sinful anger. Let's start with sinful anger. 
Sinful anger is anger that is self-defensive and self-serving. Sinful anger is that is anger that is resentful. Now listen carefully, that is resentful of what someone has done to us. We think we have not been treated fairly. We think that we have been offended. Perhaps we were offended. But normally, we, with this kind of sinful anger, we get angry because of what has been done to us or towards us. Maybe our pride has been wounded. Maybe our character has been called into question. Our credibility has been maligned, and we become angry over something like that. Or it could be something as simple as we don't get our way. And what happens? We get angry. We see that in our country, unfortunately, far too often anymore. People don't get their way, and they explode in anger. Sinful anger, anger that dishonors God, is the type of anger that leads to murder and all kinds of other destructive sins. But righteous anger, we may say positive anger, is anger that must be expressed when God is dishonored. This may be completely foreign to us to think about it in this way. When God's laws are broken, when God's word is disregarded, that's when we should be angry. That's when we should practice, experience righteous indignation. It is an anger that is directed at evil. It's an anger that abhors injustice, immorality, and ungodliness. We are commanded as believers to be angry when God is dishonored. It's the kind of anger that Jesus expressed. For instance, in Mark chapter 3, Verse 5 says, and he, that's referring to Jesus, looked around at them, that's referring to the Pharisees, and he looked around at them with anger. Why? Grieved at their hardness of heart because he wanted to heal man and they didn't want him to do it. But let me ask you this. Would the healing of the man bring honor to God? Yes. And he was grieved, Jesus was grieved that they didn't want to give God his honor. They didn't want to glorify him through the healing of this man. To them it was more important to obey their made-up rules about the Sabbath. And Jesus expressed anger at that. It's the kind of anger that Jesus expressed when he cleansed the temple and threw out the money changers and all the merchants that were selling their overpriced goods. Jesus expressed a righteous anger over the treatment of, of his father's house, which was supposed to be a place of worship and a place of prayer, but they had turned it into a religious mini-mall. And that angered him. And what did he do? 
he took action. And as shocking as this may seem, there is an anger that pleases God. So I'm not so sure about that. Okay, then just look at the life of Christ. Did Jesus ever do anything that was displeasing to the Father? Well, well, no. Well, I just gave you two instances where Jesus expressed anger. So what do we conclude? There is an anger that, is, that pleases God. And the kind of anger that pleases God is a controlled, righteous anger. Again, anger over injustice, over the mistreatment of the poor and the vulnerable in our society. Anger when God, his word, his spirit, his son are all dishonored. That should anger us. The good doctor said we are to be angry over evil and wrong. And he's simply echoing the words of Psalm 97. Oh, you who love the Lord. Can anybody fill it in? Hate evil. Hate evil. Don't, it doesn't say tolerate it. It doesn't say shrug it off. It says, oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. But in our anger, we must be careful that we don't cross the line and let our righteous anger turn into sinful anger. Let me give you just a couple ways when this can happen. First of all, the Christian should not be a hothead. The Christian should not be bad-tempered. You know, it's the kind of person that you have to walk on eggshells every time you're around them. Because you never know how they're going to react. That's not righteous anger. That's sinful anger. Second, the Christian should not be easily provoked to anger. There's a lot of professing Christians that are angry, but they're angry for all the wrong reasons. Let me give you a real-life example. And I, I could mention this man's name, and several in the room would know him, but I, so I won't do that. But there was a man one time that got so angry over the style of a song that was sung in a church service, he was literally shaking with rage. Shaking with rage. Because there may have been a drumbeat to that song. I'm going to explode. That's the way he was. He was physically shaking. He was so mad he wouldn't speak to me. That's not righteous anger. That's sinful anger. Christian's not easily provoked. Well, that wasn't good for my throat. <laughs> Any anger that is excessive and uncontrolled is sinful anger. So I don't think it'd be hard for us to draw the conclusion that anger is a very, very, very common source of sin. And as a believer, <coughs> excuse me, you must make sure that when you think of anger, you are thinking about it biblically and not as the world thinks. Many are told there's not much that they can do about their anger. The best they can hope for is simply to manage it. Or they need to do their best to suppress it. Containment is the goal. 
please don't let anyone tell you that it's okay to be angry. Especially if the person telling you that is not a believer. And I stand here fully understanding that that may contradict what a lot of you believe. As a believer, you need to always keep in mind that the mind of the unbeliever has been darkened and corrupted by sin. And Paul describes the mind of the unbeliever as futile. Remember what we learned about that? It means that they can never arrive at the truth. They can never come to a right conclusion. Think about Dr. David Banner. What happens when he gets angry? Some saying, David who? You know, the guy that turns into the hawk. Why is he turning into the hawk? Hawk smash. <laughs> Why? He gets mad. He gets angry. The problem with a blanket statement such as it's okay to be angry is this. It is a completely unqualified statement. And again, that may challenge what you've been told or perhaps what you have come to believe, but hear my reasoning before you reject it, okay? How can we begin to determine, take any statement, not just this one, but how can you begin to determine if a statement such as it's okay to be angry is truthful or not? Two things you need to do. Number one, realize that there is no context to such a statement. It's almost like it's a statement made in a vacuum. It's a statement that is made that I, that I wonder if people have thought through the consequences of them making that statement to others. Because if it's okay to be angry, then that, for me, would follow. Then it's okay for me to express that anger. And the way that I express that anger may be to take it out on you. So could we now say that, well, it's okay to be angry? We say, no, that's, that's not appropriate. It's not okay to be angry. See, there's no context to it. Second, there's no qualification to that kind of a statement. So if there's no context and there's no qualification, where do we go to look for context and qualification? Anybody want to guess? The Scriptures. The Scriptures. Now, if someone says it's okay to be angry because God is being dishonored, then the Bible would say, amen, yes. It's right for you to be angry in that situation. Yes, that is a proper expression of anger. And by the way, we have to throw out this image of our, in our minds of anger as somebody who's just over the top and just completely upset and can't control themselves and pacing back and forth and frothing at the mouth. You can be angry and not do any of those things. You can be angry not doing any of those things. And if you are angry, you shouldn't be doing any of those things. But what if someone were to say, I don't like what you did to me, and that makes me angry? That is not a valid, legitimate expression of anger for you as a Christian. Why? Because it's selfish. You're worried about what has been done to you. 
You're more concerned about your glory. You're more concerned about your honor. So it's not a valid expression of anger. And if you're angry because you've been personally offended, the Bible doesn't condone that kind of anger. If you're angry because God has been dishonored, his will has been violated, then it is right to be angry. In fact, you may have to go home and chew on this. It would be sinful for us to not be angry in light of what the scriptures teach. But when an unqualified statement such as it's okay to be angry is made, we must make sure that we engage in biblical discernment to examine that whether or not what we're being told or perhaps what we believe, we have to make sure that it is in agreement with the scriptures. Now, let me talk to the mom and dads in the room. And everybody else can listen, but particularly mom and dad. Because anger is such a common emotion expressed by your children, it provides you with a wealth of opportunities to teach your children the difference between righteous and sinful anger. It provides you with numerous opportunities to teach your children about their heart and to teach them about their need for a new heart that only Christ can give. Don't get angry when your child gets angry. You need to see it as an incredible opportunity to teach them why they are angry and then point them to Christ. Don't be surprised when your child becomes angry. So why? Because anger is an expression of our selfishness, of their selfishness. I don't know how many kids are in the room. I see some here, but everybody can listen to this as well. Every time that you become angry with your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister, you know what's happening? Your anger is pulling back the curtain of your heart and revealing the condition of your heart. It's showing you something about yourself. And if you have been saved and you're still becoming angry, your anger is teaching you something. It's teaching you something about the condition of your heart and the work that the Holy Spirit is still doing in your heart to make you more like Christ. If, they, if a child hasn't been saved... Your anger is God's way of showing you that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And I would encourage you to talk to mom and dad about what's going on inside of you and let them show you how Jesus can change your heart. Amen. So what about the rest of us? Well, just as I asked you last week to monitor your speech and to see how you're doing with, the, you're doing with telling the truth, I, I would... I would love to get some anonymous, uh, you can't hardly do that anymore, but some anonymous uh, feedback on that. How many times did you realize that perhaps you were exaggerating the details of a story or, or embellishing a story or just telling half a truth? Well, likewise, I challenge you this week to examine yourself to see how often you are angry 
and what it is that makes you angry. Is it righteous anger or is it sinful anger? And I'm afraid that far too many of us are angrier over how others have treated us than we are over how others are treating God. And so what's Paul's command to you as a believer? Be angry. There are times when you as a believer need to be angry over the sin that destroys lives. That's what sin does, folks. Destroys lives. We need to be angry when God is dishonored. We need to be angry when God is misrepresented. We need to show more righteous indignation over the injustice built into every layer of our society. We, of all people, should be concerned about that. The good doctor writes, I sum up the whole portion position like this. Hate sin. Hate sin in the sinner. Always, but never, never hate the sinner. Both sides of the truth are essential. Sin must never be condoned. Sin must never be excused. Sin must always be condemned. Thus, Paul says, be angry and sin not. And let me say this again. Our expression of righteous anger should never be ugly. They should never cause anyone to say, what's wrong with that fool? Nor should they be violent. As strange and as contradictory as this may seem, our expressions of anger should be loving. Should be loving. And righteous anger does more than just talk. We have a society full of talkers. There's no end to the talk. Very few people who take action. The believer who expresses righteous indignation needs to act, needs to get involved, needs to take action. It needs to do what needs to be done and can be done to stand up and fight for what is right. So what are some ways that we can express righteous anger? Let me give you two or three, and you can probably add to the list. First of all, simply speak the truth. What I mean by that is don't let falsehood, misrepresentation, don't let error go unchecked. But remember to always speak the truth in love, always. Now, this next one may be a little bit more touchy. Be careful that your entertainment choices are not condoning sin. And we live in the day and age where you can stream anything that you want. There's no, seemingly no end to the Netflix and the Amazon Primes and the Hulus and the Acorn TVs and the Brit Boxes and all, all of these channels. And I'm assuming that you would never watch a TV show or go to a movie that is blatantly anti-God and openly blasphemous. Yet, 
How many times are we entertained by material that is anti-God and sinful? It's just presented in a more nuanced and subtle way. We entertain ourselves with material that should make us angry. Should make us angry over the sin and the violence being portrayed. And say, oh, you're, 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 you're meddling now, maybe. But here's why I bring it up. When you entertain yourself with that which God condemns, you are taking the edge off of your righteous anger. You are blunting that edge. It's becoming dull. And the more we expose ourselves to this kind of material, the less righteous indignation we're going to express. Let's be honest. How much righteous indignation do we express? Let me give an example. As Christians, we should be angry over abortion. But the way to express that anger is not by shooting a doctor or bombing a clinic. Those are both expressions of sinful anger. A righteous demonstration of anger would be to get involved in foster care like Chris and Heather have done. Volunteer at a local pregnancy help center. Provide financial, emotional, and spiritual support to a single mother who thinks abortion is her only option. See, there are ways that we can be angry and yet not sin. We say we have these deeply held beliefs and convictions, but do we act on them? Do they move us to do anything? Anger is a God-given emotion. Never, ever forget that. But like the rest of our emotions, it's been corrupted by the fall. So now, we don't know that pure anger that we originally were intended to have. And when you struggle with unrighteous anger, remember this. There is grace. And that God is sovereign over your emotions. I wish more believers would take that to heart. God is sovereign over your emotions. That means your anger can be more than managed. That means you don't have to suppress it. The solution is to confess, not suppress. And to put it to death through the power of the Holy Spirit. But don't stop at simply putting away sinful anger. Put on righteous anger. Take a stand. Get involved. Examine your life and how you entertain yourself. Be angry, but don't sin. Now, I don't have time this morning to get into 
the rest of what Paul said there. Perhaps I will next week, perhaps not. But notice one thing that Paul says, put a time limit on any anger, even this righteous anger. So what's the time limit? Well, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I, don't, I, I can't say for sure that that's literally what Paul meant, but the principle is certainly this. Don't hang on to the anger. Why? Verse 27, and give no opportunity, what's it say? To the devil. See, when we hang on to the anger, we open the door wide for the schemes of Satan. When the time is right, I'll tell you of an incident that I'd lived with for probably 25 to 30 years that was a result of anger that was never dealt with. And the devil saw an opening and he took it. Say, well, how can I develop the kind of anger that pleases God? Here it is, by getting to know God. And what I mean by that is not just knowing some facts about him, but by learning his heart. His heart. Let's pray. Father, as I mentioned last week, Paul wrote these words to believers. He wrote these words to Christians who, some I'm sure were still struggling with these very issues. Having a struggle with telling the truth and others are having trouble with their anger. And Father, it's written to your children which means that you care about us and you want to see us put these things aside. You've already removed them from us. Now in practice, we just need to follow through. Father, I know there are more than a few in the room who could stand up and give testimony to the damage that anger has done in their lives. And I don't mean their anger, the anger of another. So it's not something that we should take lightly. Again, Father, it's not one of those things where we should say, oh, well, that's just the way that I am. No, no, no. That's not the way that your Heavenly Father wants you to be. And Father, we may need to do some soul searching. We may need to engage in some hard work. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can begin to implement these commands of your word. And so we will begin to reflect the worthy walk in our lives. And you will be glorified and Christ will be exalted. And we thank you for it. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.